Well, we are in the book of Philippians that, in a very literal way, has Jesus at the center. You know, we talked a little bit last week about the historical background of the book and of this idea that at the center of the book is this Christmas poem all about Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do for us. And Jesus became the center of the life for people in the city of Philippi. Now, what we didn't talk as much about is how the message of Jesus actually got to that city. So we're not going to read the whole thing today, but I want to give you a summary of Acts chapter 16. And I'm not going to do it justice. It's, it's a pretty crazy chapter of the Bible, so you should go read it this afternoon because th there's no Bills game today. It's a bye week, uh, which means you have nothing better to do this afternoon than, than go read Acts 16. Uh, or you can read it at halftime of the Bengals game or whoever it is you like to watch. Because it's in that chapter where Paul has actually just met Timothy. So a lot of these letters, including this one to Philippians, will say things like, Paul and Timothy to all of you. He's just met Timothy. They've been a couple of places. They're actually not planning to go to Philippi. They're planning to go somewhere else. And it says, but the Holy Spirit forbade them. So they don't go there. They try to go somewhere else. And it says, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them. So then finally, it's like the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, you are not getting this. I'm going to have to give you a vision. And he has this dream that he's supposed to go to Macedonia, which is where Philippi is. It is the primary city of Macedonia. And so that's how they finally end up there. When he gets there, he starts sharing the gospel. And when they go down by the river, he meets all of these people, including this woman named Lydia, influential in the city, who's been taking that message to heart and beginning to share it with other people. So that one of the earliest places that the church met was in Lydia's home. So it's like everything is going well in Philippi. Like this is one of the places that it's actually working. Until one day Paul casts a demon out of a little girl who's been telling the future and making people money by telling the future. Weird, right? I told you. I'm not going to do the whole thing justice. We're just going to keep moving because of that, so not even because of the gospel, but because Paul costs them their income, he's thrown into prison. They beat him, which you can't do to a Roman citizen like Paul. And when they find out he's a Roman citizen, oh no, we beat him and put him in prison. They say, hey, let's just keep this quiet. You can get out. You can leave. And he says, oh no, I'm not going quietly. And he basically has a parade back to Lydia's house where he continues to encourage people in Jesus Christ, teach them about the gospel before moving on to the next location. So there's this incredible city with these incredible people who have taken the message of Jesus Christ to heart. That he loves them so much that he died for them. That if they repent of all the things that they've done against God and come to him for forgiveness, he will give them eternal life. That he will be their king. Because Philippi is a city that is known for kings and heroes coming to find fame and fortune. And whether they were mythical people like Hercules, or whether they were real political figures like Philip II, it's a place where they worked hard to elevate man to the level of God. And then here comes Paul with this entirely different message about what it looks like to have Jesus at the center. That Jesus actually is God and lowers himself to become a man for us. And that's what the Christmas poem is all about. So as Chad explained this to us last week, it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that actually set the framework for the entire book. So we're going to be in chapter 1 today, 
But all of it is built around Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And you'll actually see in your program today, if it, if it felt a little hefty, a lot of good stuff in there today. One part of it is actually those verses, because Chad's given us the challenge to memorize it over the course of this series, which can look daunting at first, but I realized we're doing about eight weeks of Philippians, and there are eight verses to memorize, which means if I can memorize like one sentence a week, and then just keep adding one more sentence, hey, we could do that by the time that this series is over. Because the reason we call that a Christmas poem is, well, sure, partly because Christmas is right around the corner and it's nice to talk about Christmas, but really it's because what does Christmas celebrate? It celebrates the incarnation, right? God coming in the flesh. It's God being born as a man, lowering himself to serve us to the point of death on a cross, but not to stay dead, to rise again because he will receive all of the glory for conquering sin and death. And everything in this letter is built around that with Jesus at the center. And so I want you to imagine yourself, maybe you're sitting at Lydia's house, you know, you're remembering that time that Paul was here and all those weird things that happened and, and you're thinking about Jesus and you're actually probably singing this poem. We have evidence that it was probably an early hymn that people would sing to help them learn what they believed about who Jesus is. And then somebody comes up to the door, pounding on the door. You guys, you guys, we got a letter from Paul. Well, dude, read it already. Okay, okay, all right. It says, um, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, Hey, that's us. With the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? This would be so exciting for them. Right? It's not just another form letter. Paul's not writing this with in mind like, hey, I got I to gotta try to add some more pieces to the Bible before I run out of time. Right? He's writing to dear friends that he knows well, that he misses, that he can't wait to see again. And so he addresses it from Paul and Timothy, although most of the way through the book you'll see him use singular, just I, you know, I'm speaking to you, which means that Timothy's probably with him at this point, and he calls himself a bondservant, which is like a really heavy-duty word for I am slave to a master. And the reality is that in, in Paul's theology, there's a sense in which we are all slaves to something. But Jesus Christ is the only master who sets you free. And so Paul says, hey, that's who we want to serve. If we're going to serve something, we're going to serve Jesus. And so he says, we are bondservants and we're writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know what you hear when you hear the word saints. You know, maybe you think New Orleans saints. Maybe you think uh, like Mother Teresa, right? Like I was listening to Joe Foch the other day, a teacher out of Calvary in Philadelphia. He said, you usually, like those are the people that seem like they can hover off the ground for just a few seconds, right? There's something extra spiritual about a saint, right? Except Paul never uses it that way. Like in the Catholic Church, it's something like you have to have like two confirmed miracles and be dead before they'll call you a saint. No, Paul's writing to his regular friends who love Jesus. When he says saints, that is the Greek word hagioi, which just means holy ones. That you are the ones who have been set apart by God and for God, saved by Jesus Christ. 
So if you're sitting here this morning and you feel like your life is not what it should be, you wish you were obeying better, you got some things you're still working on, but you love Jesus, you know that he's your forgiver and he's your savior, you are a saint. You are one of the holy ones because of Jesus Christ. And so his message to them is also his message to us. And notice what he offers to them, grace to you and peace. And you'll notice Paul always puts them in that order. Like you have to know grace first to be able to understand peace. And in some ways these pieces are kind of um, standard for an introduction to a letter. Grace would be a, a common Greek greeting. So this is another letter from that same, this is not Philippians, but this is another letter from that same time. And what you see in that yellow box is the word kyrene, grace. But it's sort of like if I was writing a letter, you know, our, our format is kind of like, dear grandma, whole bunch of stuff, love Drew. Right, like that's very familiar. That's how we write letters, right? Well, so for the Greeks, it would be grace to you, right? Drew to you with grace. That's kind of their standard. In the Jewish world, it would be peace, shalom, peace to you. So Paul's actually famous for not only combining these two, but like expanding this thing. That it's not a throwaway grace to you. Hey, grace to you. Hope stuff's going good. Anyway, here's what I'm really writing about. You owe me money. <laughs> Love Drew, <laughs> right? Now Paul takes this and he says, no, I want you to actually experience grace. Because if you do, you'll know peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace is the unmerited favor of God himself to you. So that you have peace with God. But you can also experience the peace of God. Go through life peacefully because of Jesus Christ. And so those first two sentences, those first two verses really become his introduction to this letter. And then the next thing he's going to do is pray for them. And I think this is really interesting because as we think about the Christmas poem as a Christmas pattern for life, one of those patterns is how we pray, how we talk to God, what we talk to him about. And as I read these verses... It kind of got me asking, and I think this is good for you to ask too, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? And maybe you're thinking, I can't remember the last time I prayed. Let's see, it was probably for dinner, <laughs> you know? A lot of times it's for somebody who's sick or the next person who's having surgery. Things I need or things I want or, or something somebody else wants. And, and not that we don't pray for any of those things. But as I read this, I was really surprised all the things he wasn't praying for and instead what he was. So you're not going to see this on screen yet. I want to actually just read you these next few verses, but then we'll break them down. Because here's what he says. After greeting them, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, making a request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So he even says he's making a request for them, and yet there doesn't seem like there's any of those specific things that I might ask God for. So, so let's break this down a little bit. Look at verse 3. I've, I've kind of formatted this in a strange way, just so you can see how the Greek works, because one of the things we don't do in English that they do all the time in Greek like Ephesians is a good example of this. I think it's Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Like all one sentence. 
that in English, like if you did that in your grammar school, you would have red ink everywhere for what, like this is a brutal run on, nobody knows what you're talking about anymore. And it's really tricky in the Greek because they have so many dependent clauses that you can be 10 verses away and he'll say something that's still affecting like it back up there. So this layout is just to help you see a little bit what the key parts are. That what he's saying he's doing is, I thank my God and I make request. Right, those are kind of your key verbs that everything else is hanging off of. But look at how he qualifies it. I thank my God every time, always, with every prayer. And I make request for all of you. Every, always, every, all. Like Paul is just like head over heels for these people and how much he loves them, how much he thinks about them. That even if he's not thinking about them, every time I do think about you, this is how I'm talking to God about you. And look what it is. After he builds all of that up, verse 5 is kind of the point. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That the thing he thanks God for, when he continues to make requests for them, that God would give them strength and love and joy, the thing that he's so thankful for is their fellowship in the gospel. Like that we're in this Jesus thing together. So essentially he's thanking God and praying for their spiritual growth. And that really hit me because I thought, I wonder how often... Am I thinking so much about other people instead of myself? And the fact that I laugh a little bit means probably not often enough. Like how often am I thinking enough of other people that I'm just sitting down saying, God, thank you for that guy, for that woman, for the way they're growing in you and for how they've seen who you are in their life. Because that's essentially the way that Paul has been praying for them every time, always, in every prayer for all of them. A couple of years ago, I was, I was talking to a actually one of our study group leaders here at Horizon, that I think, I don't know if they picked it up from Philippians or where they picked it up, but I've never heard it quite that way before because what they told me was that when they go into a group study with other people, kind of what God had taught them was that they no longer focused on it as primarily content delivery, but that instead they realized when they go in there as a leader, the main thing that they're focused on is every individual in the group. And so they'd started praying for every person by name, asking God how that person was growing, where that person was growing, where that person was being challenged in their spiritual walk, and where they might need encouragement to walk with Christ. And that was kind of convicting for me because I thought, you know, when I lead study groups, it is really easy to be mostly focused on, like, do I have all my notes in place? Do I have enough content for today? I got to make sure this discussion goes well. And by the end of the day, if you got all your stuff out that you planned and you're like, all right, we did it. We got it. <laughs> like, a couple guys in here, you guys are in a group with me, so you know how, how, how easy it is to kind of drift down that track. And then almost to, like, release and say, hey, wait a minute, let's just see what God is doing. What's God telling Tim? What's God telling Ken? What's God teaching Drew these days? It's one of the reasons that I encourage people all the time, you know, if you're not in a group study, if you're not even just one-on-one with another friend or Christ follower, spending time in the Word together, letting God speak to you, man, don't wait. Get into that. Invite another friend or come talk to me about one of our pathway groups. And we've got a bunch of groups that are doing Philippians together right now. I'd love to help you get connected. Because I love that heart from Paul. Because I think that's the heart of Jesus. Like you see Jesus do the exact same thing in his ministry. When he meets people... Oh yeah, Jesus does a lot of teaching. I mean, if your Bible has the red stuff, you can find whole pages that are like red back to back of of Jesus doing content delivery. 
but it's because of the people that he's looking at, the people who showed up today to hear him. You hear him say things like, I have prayed for you, Peter. The God of the universe in the flesh took time to pray for one person and their spiritual growth. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. And so coming on the, on kind of, it's actually kind of in the middle of that prayer. But I love that next line in verse 6 because with all of this love, with all of this excitement for how they have partnered with him in the gospel, then he gives one of the greatest statements of the assurance of salvation that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I've noticed in our kind of our transition from Numbers to Philippians, when you go from something like Old Testament that has a lot of narrative, like sometimes 10 verses is just setting up. So they walked over here and they found this thing and they went up the mountain and then God said. And you can almost like skim 10 verses to get to the point. When you get to the New Testament and especially the epistles and the way that Paul packs this stuff in here, it's like, oh my goodness, every word feels like it could be the entire message. Like every word just carries so much weight and so much content. So let, let's look. We're not going to go word by word all the way through this. But just for this verse, I want you to see these words. Because look at what he says. Being. Right? Not someday. Not if it all works out. Right now, he is already confident. Not hopeful. Not crossing his fingers. Right? Not unless it turns out that this thing I said wasn't true after all or that Jesus can't keep a promise. No, he says, being confident, absolutely certain, not only for himself, he's talking about them, that he has absolute confidence of this very thing. What very thing? That he who began a good work in you will complete it. Well, who is he? Well, he is God. That God began this good work in you. Think about what that means. It means you didn't begin it. God did. Right? That's part of where the confidence comes from. Because if it's relying on me to kickstart this thing, then it might be relying on me to keep it going. And it might be relying on me to finish it. But if God started this thing, if it was God who came from heaven to earth, if it was God who sent that gospel message out into the world so that my ears could hear it, then it relies on God to continue the good work. It relies on God to finish the good work. And I love this. It means that right now, you are already a good work. Maybe you don't feel like it sometimes. If you feel like it all the time, you bet I'm a good work. <laughs> then there may be pride that he wants to work on there, but you're still a good work. Right? I mean, just think about what God is saying about you as his child. He doesn't say, oh yeah, that one's a project. Oh, we'll see if we can finish this. I'm trying. I'm trying. We'll see how far we get. No, he says, hey, have you seen the good work I did? His name is Drew. Like, that seems weird to say out loud, but God talks that way about me and about you. He's doing it right here. Did you see that good work I did? I'm not done yet either. It's going to get even better. Because look at that. He began a good work in you and will complete it. I love that word complete. Because the Greek root behind that word is the same Greek root that is used when Jesus shouts from the cross. It is finished. 
same word. And you will be too. So here's what's kind of strange. Theologically, in the Bible, it would be accurate. Like, this is one of those places where you sense, like, because God is outside of time, he talks about things differently than we can talk about things, right? Like, he's seen the beginning, he's seen the end, he's seen everything in between. That's why he can promise that he really will do this thing. And theologically, if Christ was slain before the foundation of the earth, like, you see places in Scripture that basically tell you, hey, you were saved before God even created the universe. Hey, you were saved before you were even born. Hey, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, you were saved. The work was finished that day. Of course, you weren't born yet. (laughs) So when you were born and you heard about Jesus and you chose not to reject him, you chose to accept him as your savior and your forgiver, that was the day you were saved. And he is saving you right now. Because of that commitment you made to him, because you put your trust in him, he's saving you right now, and he will save you for eternity. I think this is part of why you see the word mystery so often in the New Testament. How exactly that all works is not totally clear. But that God has this picture and this promise that he who started it will complete it. He will finish what he has done in you until the day of Jesus Christ which quite simply is the day that he comes back. The day that he wins the full, final, and ultimate victory. And so I know some of us, even just as I talk to people here at Horizon, some of us, that is like, you just take it right in and you say, that is awesome, and you never doubt it again. But I've noticed that for a lot of Christ followers, it's almost weird. Like, this may not be 100%, but I've noticed this. It's almost like the more you put other sins behind you, Right? The enemy can't get you with that lust anymore or that anger anymore or that gossip anymore or that greed anymore. It's like, what does he have left? Except to try to remind you of when he used to get you with those things and make you doubt if maybe you're really saved after all or something. And there's this weird like lack of assurance that we have as if things start to depend on us. As if I have to like, all right, I believe that Jesus saved me, but now I better make sure it sticks. <laughs> And that is not what this verse is saying. This verse says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It reminded me of uh, one of the commentaries I was reading from a a scholar named James Boyce was talking about a friend of his that in college was working on uh, telephone lines. And so he would climb up these high telephone poles to work on the line. And apparently the way the gear works is there's a leather strap that you put around your back and around the pole. And then that's kind of how you climb the pole. Because if you try to just climb it like this, like you can't grip it hard enough, you'll get a little bit of the way up and then you'll slide down or you'll fall off. And so they use this strap and essentially what you do is you put it around the pole and then you lean back into it. And that will hold you up. And then you can climb the pole and then like literally you just relax against the strap and that holds you while you need to do whatever work you need to do. The problem for his friend was that he understood the concept and so he would get all, you know, get all ready and get to the pole and he would climb it that way. Then he would look down, see how high he was and say, I'm really supposed to lean back? Lean forward to grab the pole and instantly start sliding down. Because it's as strange as it sounds, lean away from the pole and you'll stay right where you are. Lean in and you're not strong enough. And man, it's such a perfect picture of our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, that sometimes we, we, we don't realize how leaning into that strap is the only thing that got me here. Like, the heights I've reached is because of him. And then once I get there, I start to think, now it's my job 
to hold on. Right? And scripture absolutely calls us to obedience, but it tells you every single time, you can't hold on. <laughs> when you are weak, he is strong. It is he who holds on to you. It is he who will complete the good work if we keep leaning into him. That's Paul's message. Not only a reminder for them, but don't forget that he said he was confident of this in them. He's not waiting to see if this will work out because he knows the promises that God is keeping. And so from that assurance, he goes right into his love for them in verses 7 and 8. Believe it or not, we're, all, we're still all in the same sentence. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. I, I love that phrase. I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Remember, these used to be strangers. He was never even planning to be in Philippi until the Spirit was like, not there, not there. Okay, Philippi, please. And now he has this deep love for them as friends. And it sounds so much like what Jesus teaches. You know, Neil uh, referenced John 15 earlier. And in that same chapter, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Right, that the love we get from Jesus is straight from the Father through Jesus to us. And then later in the same chapter, he says, Now, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Which means that essentially what he's saying is, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So love each other as the Father has loved me and I have loved you. <laughs> right? And the reason I love that is because our, our human love, maybe this is just me confessing, but... It has limits, right? I try to love people, and some people are easier to love, right? You know who I'm talking about. That's harder to love. Maybe you're sitting next to them. Hey, that's not nice. Don't do that. Don't go there. Right? I run out pretty quick. But man, is it actually possible that I can love people with the love that God loves Jesus with and Jesus loves me with? Because sign me up. And so then, out of those two verses, look at the instruction that he gives them in verse 9. And this I pray. All right, so he's still giving them this pattern of prayer. He says that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So right after telling them how he loves them with the love of Christ, the very affection of Christ, he says, hey, and I, want, I want this for you too. I want your love to abound. So I actually want to take each of these, that your love may abound, that you approve the things that are excellent, and being filled with the fruit of righteousness. And let's just think about those together for a minute. Because what he just said is that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, right? So in kind of a weird way, that means that on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished... The work of salvation was done. There's nothing you can add to what Jesus has done for you. And yet, there's a sense in which it is finished, but he's not finished because you're not finished. So your salvation is secure, but your holiness, right, is still growing. We're still learning those things. 
And I think that's easy to see in our own lives, right? Like, I know I've got places I still need to grow. I know there are places he's still teaching me to become more like Christ. And so even as Paul has given them that incredible assurance that he wants their confidence to be in nothing, it's not in their career, it's not in their finances, it's not in the market, it's not in their relationships, it's only in Jesus Christ. And because they have that confidence, instead of just sitting around and waiting for the day of Christ, it's like, now let's grow. Let's grow. And so these are kind of the examples that he's giving them. So here's what's helpful for me in that. That means... When I find something in my life that's not quite finished or needs to be refinished, I don't have to panic. It just means that he still loves me and he's still doing a good work in me. Like when he shows us those things and it can be convicting, right, and it can weigh on you. Instead of feeling like, oh no, I failed God and maybe he's mad at me and man, and then... What happens is it tends to create more distance between you and God because you're embarrassed to go talk to him and I don't know how this happened again. And Hey, deep breath. He who began a good work and you're still working on it. He's still completing it. And so these are some of Paul's examples. He says, hey, I want your love to abound. What that means is no matter how much you love today, you could love more. Let your love abound more and more. And then look how he qualifies it. In knowledge and all discernment. Which I think is an interesting phrase. Because that means it's not turn off your brain, turn off your morals, just love. It's all love. Hey, I, hey you know what? God is love. I don't, I don't judge. Right? Essentially what he's saying is we want to love people. Right? That's an active thing like Jesus did. When you think about the Christmas poem, his love shows up by humbling himself, serving us, even being willing to die for us. That's love in action. But you never see Jesus say, and therefore, go, hey, just do kind of whatever you want. It's like, in a weird way, like, I know this is kind of our culture. Our culture pitches it as if the nicest thing you can do for somebody else is to let them do whatever they want. And don't bug them. That's not really true. I mean, that does not work with raising kids, right? Like, let's just keep it simple. If I, if I woke my kids up in the morning and said, I love you, so do whatever. I mean, come on, Right? They do that anyway, but I can't tell them that, <laughs> you know? All right, I shouldn't pick on my kids. They're good kids. Right, but he's telling us with knowledge and discernment, you want to know God well. You want to know his will for your life. You want to know what obedience looks like. When you love others, you want to do that with discernment, and that's hard. Like, when is the place to be stern, and when is the place to show mercy? When is the place to speak truth? And am I willing to speak it in love? Because Paul also doesn't want them to take this and have people walking around saying, hey, I got knowledge and discernment, and I'll tell you what, you are a jerk. Right? It's loving knowledge, loving discernment, that we can actually look at the world around us, identify the things that are broken in our culture, and love people towards Christ without necessarily having to approve everything that goes on around us. I mean, that's what was in Philippi, right? They're going against their culture of lifting up these heroes and these men as God, but they're doing it with love as they show you, hey, there's something better. And I know it's counterintuitive and I know it's going to make you change some things and I know it means you don't get to go to that heroin anymore and talk to the, the Hercules statue. And, but let me tell you about Jesus. I'm telling you, I think you're going to love it. And so as they love more and more, he also tells them, I want you to approve the things that are excellent. Specifically, so that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. 
Now, guys, this is, uh, this is convicting, if you ask me. And so it's okay to be convicted here. Because remember, he's already given them grace and peace and confidence in their salvation, confidence that God is doing his good work. And then he says, but here's something we've got to talk about. There's stuff in your life that's offensive. <laughs> There's stuff in your life that is not excellent. And he'll go into this even more in chapter 4. But he says, hey, here's what you need to do. Approve the things that are excellent. So I think about that. Is there stuff in my life that is not excellent that would actually bring offense? Like I come to church on Sunday morning and this is awesome and we're hearing the word and we're singing songs of worship and then I go home and what am I watching on TV later the same day? Is it excellent? I go to group study and we're talking about God and everything's great and I, you know my, the, the things that I talk about, the things that come out of my mouth, definitely pleasing to God. What about when I'm just with the guys I work with? What, what about when I'm just hanging out with my buddies in my neighborhood? Is it still excellent? Are there words that I'm using that I wish I wasn't using? Or the, the thoughts that we let ourselves have about that guy? Or that lady? Are they excellent? Because this is kind of Paul's version of like, like till the day of Christ, right? If that's when Christ comes back to win the final victory, this is kind of Paul's version of like, hey, at any given moment, like what if Jesus showed up? What if Jesus came back while you were watching that on TV? Do you say, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here? Or are you like turning the TV off as fast as possible? Right? Like if Jesus showed up right now, are you like, Jesus, it's great to see you? Or are you like chucking your phone out the window because you hope he doesn't see what you were looking at? Are you like, Jesus, you're finally here? Or does my really loud voice suddenly get a lot quieter because I know I gave in to my anger again? And look, I know that we are not perfect. He knows that too. Right? That's what he just said. He's still completing the good work. So this is not a guilt trip as much as it is a challenge to say, hey, I want to be willing to look into my life, to look into the things that I stream and the things that I say and the things that I think about and the things that I do and ask God, is there stuff here that I'm approving that's not excellent? Because what he wants is for us to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. And when a son or daughter of the king, when a follower of Jesus Christ chooses more love, more excellence, more righteousness, look at what it does. Glory and praise to God. So I want you to ask yourself that question, and I, I know I have to ask myself too. Does how I love and what I approve fill me with things that glorify God? Do how I love and what I approve fill me with things that glorify God? A number of years ago, I was hanging out with a buddy of mine who... Um, he was about to cut his first record uh, with his band, and he's sort of the singer-songwriter type. And so we're hanging out in Nathan's basement. I am not the singer-songwriter type. I, I just hang out with the cool people, you know, Kenny and Neil, guys like that. Uh, so we're hanging out in Nathan's basement, and, and he's working on songs, and I'm giving him a little bit of feedback, and he's, uh, you know, thanks for your feedback. And his dad comes downstairs. And I, I still have never figured out if his dad just has a really dry sense of humor or if this is just kind of the way his brain works. <laughs> but he comes downstairs, he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? And, uh, and Nathan says, we're making music. And his dad goes, well, somebody has to make the music. If nobody made the music, there wouldn't be any. 
this is a joke or this is just weird. Like, okay, thank you. Um, really nice guy. Never quite figured him out. But I tell you that because a few years later, Nathan and I were talking about some of the challenges that we were going through in life. And just kind of the frustration that you feel when it's like you're trying to trust God, but there's places where you just feel like you're spinning your wheels. You know, like, how, how do I see God working in this? How do I feel like God's actually teaching me something? Because I don't. I don't. And if supposedly he's completing something in me, then this has purpose and I'm not seeing it. And so Nathan said, well, you know what? You know what my dad always says? I'm like, is this that thing about the music? <laughs> you know, you know what my dad always says? And, and I've heard other people say this and I, I forget exactly how he said it, but it was the first time I'd heard it. That if you ever wonder if God is done working on you or if your work for God is done, if you're still alive, and he's not back yet, it's not. He's not done working on you and you're not done working for him. And as strange as that sounds, in that moment where it's like I couldn't put the pieces together myself, there's something really comforting about just knowing that God does not forget about you. God wasn't like too busy somewhere else that day and he doesn't know what happened to you. That he is with you wherever you go and he is always working on completing his good work. That's you. And he will not give up until either he brings you home or Christ comes back and you are complete. I want you to be encouraged by that, just as Paul is encouraging the Philippians with that today. And so I think kind of the takeaway for me, thank God for his good work in you. Like that's the first layer. Like if that's going to be our pattern for prayer as we lead into this Christmas season, it starts with Thanksgiving. I've had one of the guys in my group has been telling me this like almost every week, just something about, hey, don't forget, like the whole thing starts with just being thankful to who God is. So thank God for his work and ask him what he's doing next. You know, maybe for you that's just learning that thankfulness. Maybe that's learning to pray for others, how they might be growing. And maybe it is something in your life that's not excellent. Maybe you thought of it when I said that, that he wants to remove. And he wants you to come alongside him in that because he wants to harvest good fruit. Because in just a minute, we're going to hear a song from the guys. And I think when they sing it, even if you've never heard the song before, like when I heard Kenny sing this earlier this week, I was like, that is from like my childhood. I haven't thought about that song for a long time. But even if you don't know it, I think you're going to recognize the words. And so I want to pray with you just before we listen. That as you hear it, you would have a heart focused on Christ as our center and thankfulness to our God. And if you're sitting here today and you're not sure that he's begun a good work in you, can I just tell you, it is this simple. That you close your eyes, you talk to just to God. Don't worry about me, don't worry about the people around you. You tell him, God, I know I'm a sinner. I've had plenty of things in my life that are not excellent. I want to trust you, Jesus, to forgive me for those things. I want to trust you to do good work in me. It's that simple. So maybe you even want to pray that way while I'm praying or during this song. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I, I just want to thank you for everybody who's here today, Lord, who's hearing this message, who's hearing these words. We know that you have us gathered in so many diverse places and even different times throughout the week. And we just thank you for the way that you are doing good work, helping us grow and completing that in us. You are a good God. 
We thank you for your grace and for your peace. And Lord, I ask that you would just help us to have the confidence in Jesus Christ to keep growing even as we know that you are completing the good work that you began in us and you will do it until the very day of Christ's victory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.